which we'll explore more in the next video. But for now, that's the first half of the Gospel of John. Good morning. I'm going to give a statement to you to start out this morning and ask you to think about it with me. See if it's not true. Here's the statement. The level of deference or submission that we give to another is directly proportionate degree of authority that they hold in our, over our lives. Let me just say that again. The, the level of deference or submission that we give to another is directly report, proportionate to the, uh, the, the degree of thor- authority that they hold in our lives. Now, let me, ex- let me give you an example of that. We're at... Um, a high school, we were at a high school sporting event watching track. They charged us way too much to get there in the first place, but that's another story, just to watch track in high school. But, so I'm there to watch my daughter run the 100 hurdles, and we're on these bleacher seats, and, and when it's time, the, the, the track that she's running on is pretty much kind of directly in front of the bleachers. People are sitting in the bleachers, so I make my way down to the front and stand on, along the railing to watch so I can see the one event that I'm there to see. As we do, um, somebody walks by, and I hear a voice say, and there's uh, several of us, they say, you can't stand in front of the, the, the railing. And I look over, and it's a pimply-faced high school kid telling me I can't stand in front of the railing. And so I go, I'm going to stand in front of the railing. They're getting ready to start the thing. Some, a minute or so passes, and then another, somebody else walks by, and I hear another voice deeper that says, uh, folks, we need you to move away from the va- railing. You're not supposed to. You're not allowed to stand in front of the railing. And I look, and it's it's a a, a gentleman, and he's got a, a windbreaker on, and he's got the name of the school on the windbreaker. So this is somebody you know who kind of does something there. And some people start to move, and I just kind of look away and I'm just keep watching. And then. I hear another voice. Somebody comes and stands next to me, and I hear a voice and says, sir, I need you to move away from the railing. And I look over, and it is a uniformed security officer who may or may have not have been brandishing a sidearm. And my response to him at that moment was, sir, yes, sir. And I made my way off. Now, that, what that illustrates for me is that in my own life, it's true, that the level of deference I give, level of submission I allow place myself in to somebody is directly proportionate to the amount of authority that I sense that they have in my life. That just ha- happens to be true, and it's true for you too, I'm sure. When, when we get to the Gospel of John, and I'm going to invite you to take a look if you have access to a Bible with you right now in one form or another. We can start in John chapter 1. We're going to fly through the first half of what you just saw. In the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is written to establish something about Jesus of Nazareth. Not just for that audience, but for you and for me too. To establish something that I'm going to use that word over and over again, that to establish his authority. That this is somebody who's got authority and that has implication for anybody who is in his path. Now, really quickly, let me just say this because as, as the church is walking through Route 66 and looking at each of the books of the Bible, there are four Gospels, and if you've been around church, you know that there are four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that start the New Testament. And people sometimes wonder, why are there four Gospels? What's the point? It's, it's all kind of the same story. Well, it just, uh, can't do this justice, but 
basically the four Gospels are there because strategically God has allowed different perspectives on the life of Jesus for different audience to have a view. Think of it this way. If, if there's a, a fender bender at, at a busy intersection in, down, in a downtown area, and they're getting reports on, on it. They're gonna, if they, they, will, they will get different reports or different views based on the vantage points of different people. If there's somebody who's a pedestrian and they almost hit them, that person's going to say, I saw the car coming. It was here. It was coming fast. And then somebody, I think he might have glanced uh, down at his phone and he hit something. You know, so he's going to tell that aspect of the story. There's somebody else who's on the other side of the street. They saw the other traffic. They saw other people. They're going to describe that. There's somebody who's sitting in an office. Uh, kind of above it. They're going to have a bird's eye view. They're going to say, well, what I saw was I, I saw it coming. This one's coming from this way. This is coming from that way. And there's somebody else who's sitting in the vehicle who says, it was terrifying. Here's what I saw. You get one story, but you get different vantage points. Each of the Gospels have a different vantage point. Matthew spoke from a Jewish point of view, expecting the Messiah, understanding the prophecies. He gives that vantage point. Mark who Craig talked about last week, gives a vantage point of somebody who's, who's focusing on the servant nature of the suffering Savior, Jesus. Action, much more action-oriented. Luke is a Gentile doctor. He's giving the perspective of saying, I've compiled the facts, and I'm telling you from a Gentile point of view. John, those three, by the way, are often called the synoptic gospels. And synoptic comes from this... Uh, this phrase, which means together sight. Their 75% of their information overlaps each other. They may have used some of the same source material. The Gospel of John is distinct from all those. There's a different vantage point that John wants you to understand about Jesus. And if we summarize it, the, the vantage point he's wanting to establish, he's wanting you to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. He has total authority. He is, he is God in the flesh. Some of the best descriptives of the deity of Jesus are found in the Gospel of John. He's got unique perspectives on that. And like you heard in the video, you see, let me see if I can get this to work. This, this is, he tells you why he wrote it. At the end of the book, he says, he did a whole bunch of signs, for the, and they're not even, some that aren't even recorded, but here's why I wrote these, he says. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And because you do that, you'll have life in his name. So, so John, we're going to talk about the first 12 chapters. John, the disciple who Jesus loved, he's establishing that he is deity, that he is authority, and he gives that as the goal. And he's going to do that through this series of accounts. And in each of these accounts, and I'm just going to, we could preach a sermon on each one of the things I'm going to show you here. But just going to do a flyby over it in the first 12 chapters to say, here's what he's wanting you to notice about Jesus. He's going to want you to notice that Jesus has authority. And he's got authority over several different realms. The first one, we could put it this way in John chapter 1, that this, is, this man has got authority over the, over the cosmic realm. He doesn't talk about the physical birth of Jesus. He starts, as you heard, look at John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, invoking the very beginning of created cosmos, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through Him, verse 3 says, uh, through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. So He's establishing this Word. And as you heard in the video, the, uh, the Word represents the part of you that proceeds to enact, to express, to convey, to reveal that, that this word, it's part, 
part of God expressed itself. And so what we see is that when God enacts things in the cosmos, it's Christ. It's, it is the second person of the Godhead who is doing the enacting. And then in verse 14, you'll see what it says about this word. And by the way, he says this word revealed God in this significant way. Because he said the word became flesh. The incarnation. He put, that means he put on flesh. And he dwelt among us. We, we saw him. We, 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 we witnessed his glory. Notice what it says about that in verse 14. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father. We have seen his glory. He is the one who spoke. When, when God created, Christ was there. This person has authority. He could speak things ex nihilo into existence. All things in the universe, in the cosmos, he's the designer of them, he's the source of them. We hear that they were made by him and they were made for him. So make it clear, the guy I'm telling you about, John says, this guy's got an authority that extends to the entire universe, the cosmos. Here's another authority he has. He therefore has authority over the material realm. He created matter and the rest of scripture says he holds it together. He holds it together. He's the, he can control it. He can alter it. He can manipulate it. However he desires to do so. And so when you get to chapter 2 and, the, and the, the miracle, the first miracle, you see an example of that. Look at chapter 2, verse 7, and this is just in the middle of it. Jesus said, fill the jars with water. So this is at the wedding. He's got, they're out of wine. Fill the jars with water. They filled them to the brim, and he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. Master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. I'm just going to just hang out there for a second to say, do you understand what he just did? He altered the chemistry of the material realm. You can't do that. I can't do that. People are, were stunned, and he didn't stop there. He was doing this regularly. In, in John uh, chapter 6, there's this famous story about the picnic, right? And if you look in John chapter 6, you'll see that 5,000 hungry men and their families are gathered, and they, and they go, we got nothing for these guys. And so there's a little boy, and he's got his picnic lunch, and he's, got, he's basically got five small barley loaves, two small fish. How, the, how will that go very far? And then it says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Plenty of grass in the place. Men sit down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. If you've been around church, you've heard this story a thousand times. Try to think of it as if it never happened before and how that would affect you. They got one little basket they handed you. take out the next person comes down. It just keeps coming. It keeps coming. You go, what the heck? When they had enough, it says, to eat... He said to the disciples, now gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. And they gathered and filled 12 basketfuls. They're carrying these things around full of the leftovers. From the five barley loaves and the two fish. And by doing so, Jesus reveals his glory. He shows this is a guy who has got authority over the material realm. He can... He did something atomically. What, what did he do? He, he, he changed the material universe just because he decided to. This is somebody with authority. 
it extends further. He has authority over the religious realm. Because everybody's got ideas about who God is, what he does, how you can know him. I mean, we do now, right? Major religions, people who, do, who say it's all what you make him to be. Everybody's got their own idea. And, we are, and, and by the way, in our culture, you are demanded to affirm and embrace everybody's idea about that, what, what they think about God. You don't dare criticize somebody else for their opinion of God. You don't dare imply that there's something wrong or insufficient about that. Jesus comes in and encounters a similar thing. He starts saying things about God, and the religious leaders and the experts go, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on now. You don't know what you're talking about. And it starts with even a sympathetic one, Nicodemus in chapter 3. And this is what it says there about him. There's a man of the Pharisees, religious bureaucracy, named Nicodemus. I'm going to give Nicodemus a little credit because later on he shows up in the story. He seems to be a sympathetic character. A member of the Jewish ruling council, he comes to Jesus at night and says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one can perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. And in reply, Jesus basically says, yeah, now let me correct you. Because you're part of an establishment, you're part of religion, and, I, and I, I need to clear something up for you. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. This whole thing, the John 3.16 comes out, the, comes out of this, this whole thing about being born again. Nicodemus doesn't understand. But if you step back from it, you realize that Jesus is saying, you have a religious system, but I have authority over it. I have the credibility, I have the absolute truth that I can speak into that, and I can tell you what is correct or what is not correct about that. This happened a lot when it came to the Sabbath because it has all these rules about what you could do because it was came out of the law and there's all these implications what God says, here's what God meant by that. He meant you can't do this and you can't do that. And Jesus starts healing people on the Sabbath. And it says after some of his miracles in John 5, and I'm flying. You can keep up if you want. Here we are in John 5. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. And Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day. I too am working. In other words, you got religious standards. I'm here to tell you I have authority over that. I can kind I made the rules. I understand what they mean. I kind of can do what I want. I heard this story. I don't know. It might be an urban legend about a university class on poetry. And there is an expert on, on um, contemporary poetry and is giving a lecture and talking about some of these authors and what they've written and then what their motives were and what they meant behind that. And, and there was a question and answer time. And of, uh, somebody raised their hand and they said, you know, you, I'm, I'm, you're incorrect about the one uh, poem that you mentioned because that was not what was intended there. And, of course, the, you know, sorry, apologies to you if you're in an academic community. But the ones who stand in front tend to think they're pretty sure of themselves. And goes, excuse me, I've been doing this for 30 years. I don't believe you know as much as I do. He goes, oh, I do. And you know where it's going, right? I am the one who wrote it. Have you ever had somebody tell you what your motives were or what you meant by what you said? And they're not necessarily right. Jesus had that all the time. He's constantly having people saying, no, we're here to correct you and tell you what God meant. When he said that, he's going, dude, I'm standing right in front of you. I am the one who wrote it. I think I know what I meant. I mean, can you imagine how that was for him to contain himself when he's got people lecturing him about what he meant? But that's, but he says, he establishes to the religious, and this is what got him killed. He establishes to them, 
I have authority over that realm. Here's, here's another one. He, he then shows he has authority over the social realm, all the mores of the culture, all the unwritten rules about how it's supposed to work. Now, lots of famous stories in the first part of John. If you look in John chapter 4, you see the story about the woman at the well. And it says in John 4, 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, well, well, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And it gives us just a one-sentence commentary that's much bigger. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And the Samaritans were kind of these half-breeds who, had, who were the product of those who had violated the, the ancient laws of God and had intermarried, and they were half-Jewish and half-Gentile, and they were seen as less than fully acceptable people. A lot of racism going on. They, they looked as not really having any value in the culture. They weren't really part of the people of God. And so they didn't associate them. They called them, they, they treated them like they were dogs. They called them dogs. And you think that's horrible, don't you, right? Except you and I carry some racism ourselves. Come on. There are people who you look at. There are people who I look at, and I tend to think, and I look a little less at you because how you look or how you talk or where you've been from or what your education level is. Well, that was, it's, never, it's not a new problem. And that so- social realm kind of establishes these biases and these protocols. And Jesus walks in, and he does two things there. Which, again, a whole sermon could go on this. He talks to somebody who's a Samaritan, giving value to them. And he talks to somebody who's a woman, who in his culture, you just didn't give that. You just, the women were considered lesser players in the culture. And Jesus, the, the, and when, they, when the disciples come back, they're shocked that he's talking. And the implication is, he's talking to a Samaritan. He's also talking to a woman. Whoa. And he says, no, understand, the, this story, I believe one of the reasons it's given, one of the reasons, is that to show that this Jesus who we're considering, this guy sets up the rules. And he has authority over the social mores in a culture. He, he didn't stop there. He hang, hung out with tax collectors who were, they were, think about what it, how you would feel like uh, about um, heroin suppliers now. It's pretty close to the value given in that culture to tax collectors. They were just considered sellouts to Rome. They were greedy, self-serving. They were, they were ruining people's lives. And Jesus hangs out. He parties with them. He goes to their houses to hang out with them. And they say, you can't do that. He goes, well, apparently I can. <laughs> but you got prostitutes there. And he's looking at them with a view that God has toward them. This is somebody who's made in the image of God. This is somebody who God is passionately pursuing. God, God is motivated more than anything else to get that person reconnected with him. He'll go to any lengths to do it. People who are diseased, the people who will threaten you. And, and he basically says, yeah, I have authority over all that. That authority extends to the natural realm. So not just a created order, but, but nature itself. Nature which we have never been able to control. We can only predict it and not very well. We can just get out of its way. There's a hurricane coming. We better just, you know, get out of the way. We can't, there's nothing we can do. 
And John presents this man and says, okay, now watch this authority. Watch what he's able to do. This is called the common basilisk. It's found in Central and South America. Rainforests. Has these long toes and fringes on its skin and little air pockets under form so that when it runs from predators, it can jump into the water, open those little fringes, and increase the surface area and allows it to run on the water for short distances of time. Isn't that like the coolest thing? Do you know what they call that? The common basilisk? They call it the Jesus Christ lizard. They do. Look it up. They call it the Jesus Christ lizard. Because then you see what this man did. And he establishes, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me to see the stories of Jesus walking on the water and doing some other stuff. It's like, did he really need to do that? It's almost like he's being playful. Like, hey guys, you're like a, and, and we're going to do it in the middle of the night, so I'm going to really freak you out. This is going to be so much fun. You should have seen the looks on your faces when you saw me walking towards you in the middle of the storm. But there's a reason why he does it. And in John chapter 6, if you look there, you'll see in verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat, set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark. Jesus was, had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed three or three and a half miles, Jesus approached the boat, walking on the water. I do a whole talk on this whole thing from Matthew, which is so much fun to do because of what they, how they react and what he says and it says, he was just going to walk on by. <laughs> you know, I'll just say this much. You know, we, we, we see Jesus do the supernatural. And he, if to him it's no big deal, he's just going to walk on by. And, and what, if, he, if they hadn't said anything, would he have just gone to the other side? And because we're looking at this guy, and for him to do, the, he, when he does the supernatural, he's only doing what comes naturally for him. And he gets in the boat, and, they, and he goes, Guys, don't you get it? Don't you have faith? But what that means is that this is somebody who controls physics. I mean, real life physics. He did it to himself. He enabled somebody else to do it. He did a lot of cool stuff with water. He's in the boat and he's sleeping and there's waves crashing. And these seasoned boatsmen are fearful of their life. And he gets up and they wake him up and says, don't you care, don't you care? And he steps to the front of the boat and he, he basically just speaks to it like, like it's an old friend. Uh, hey, hey, you, let's just bring it down. Let's just, waves, just, let's just bring it down. Wind, okay, that's enough. And it says in the book of Mark that after he did that, the disciples looked at him and they asked this question. Who who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? You know who it is? This is somebody with authority. This is somebody who can control things. He's got authority over the entire natural realm. And it extends then to the physical realm. Physical bodies. He goes around healing people. People whose bodies don't work and people who are blind give sight to and lame and deaf and people with blood diseases. You get to John chapter 9. It says, as he was going along, he saw a man blind from birth. And it's just, there's, again, there's, I, it seems to me like there's this playfulness about Jesus because he, he just uses a whole bunch of variety when he heals people. I mean, he could just speak to them apparently. 
But now, he, he, so, he, so he goes, uh, let's do it this way this time. So this time, he spits on the ground. Okay, that's really disgusting. He goes, yeah, but watch this. This is just going to be really cool. He spits on the ground, and he makes some mud with the saliva, and he puts it on the man's eyes and says, now go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And there's a much more to unpack about this. But it means, it, the Siloam means it sent. And the man went, and he washed, and he opens his eyes, and he goes home seeing it leads to this whole huge discussion where they're basically saying, he can't do that. It had to have been somebody else. And the guy goes, look. All I know is, I once was blind. Do you remember this phrase? This is where it came from. I was blind, and now I see. And they go, well, he, the man, this man's a sinner. And the guy goes, I don't, I don't, you can look at it. It's in John 9. I don't know if he's a sinner or not. All I know is, he did something really incredible to me. And they go, well, they talk about it more. He goes, he would point him out. He go, why, do you want to be his follower too? And Jesus has proved that he's got a power over the physical realm. It goes on, when you saw, the, this was mentioned in the video, to his own friend's death. It's not just the power to heal. He can do what the entire world has been trying to figure out how to do in the medical community since the beginning of time. We got this thing in us. It's called life. We're these biotic creatures, but we got this life thing. And you know something's alive because you can kind of see it move and do stuff. And then at some point, the life leaves. When the life leaves, the thing isn't alive anymore. And we have been desperately trying to figure out how can we get this thing to stay a little longer. So after centuries and centuries and centuries of working on it, we were really celebrating because we've bumped it up from 72 years to 76 years. Woohoo! Yeah! We have made some real progress. And this guy comes in and goes, no. The whole thing about the water. Look, I got water. But if you drink it, your life will never end. And if I heard that, I would respond the same way they did. Oh, you got to give me the water. Bring on the water. He's talking about a different kind of water and a different kind of life. He says, I'm the bread of life. If you eat this, you will never have hunger again. And they go, oh, man, you can control the physical life within me? Let's do it. So you get to John 11. And when he had said this, Jesus calls out, and this, Lazarus, his friend, has been dead for three days. They go, man, the body's going to stink. Don't roll the stone away. He goes, roll the stone away. Okay. And he calls out. In a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And it almost says it matter-of-factly, doesn't it? The dead man came out. Hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen. He's in his burial cloths. Probably, can't, probably can only hop. And a cloth around his face. And Jesus goes, would you get that stuff off him? The guy can't even walk. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. He did these healings, you saw it in the video, he did these as a sign. It was a symbol of something, it stood for something. You know what it stood for? This is the man who's got authority. This is not somebody to be trifled with. This is more than just a man from Nazareth. This is somebody who's got authority for stuff that you want and need in your life. You want a source of life, it's going to come from him. And it may be politically in incorrect to say it, but there is no other source. There's no other authority on the planet 
who can do this kind of stuff, who has that much power. And the level of deference and submission that we give to another is directly proportionate to the degree of authority they hold in our lives. And then it gets to one more. I'm going to call it this one. He has authority over the spiritual realm. This, this really got him trouble, and it would today. Anytime anybody says it, you can't even say it in university campuses anymore. You can't say it in a school. You can't say it without people saying it's hate crime, hate speech, to claim this that says this is a person who has the authority to be the sole determiner of a person's eternity. Regardless where they come from, regardless what they believe, regardless what the extenuating circumstances are, this man is the one and only judge. He, if you get forgiveness, you will get it only from him. If you get life, you will get it only from him. And Jesus, especially in John 5, 6, 7, and 8, I, I would love for you to just mark that somewhere. Go back and read through that lens, John 5, 6, 7, and 8. Jesus claims in his statements about the authority he has in his spiritual dimension and life. Here's a sample from John 5, 21 and following. He says, look, he's talking to the audience, says, you, you understand that there's a God who's the giver of life. He says, now get this, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son himself, the Son of God, he gives life, you see what, see what's, to whom he is pleased to give it. The only determining factor, who I'm pleased to give it to. Moreover, the Father judges no one. He's entrusted all judgment to the Son so that everybody can honor the Son just as they honor the Father. If you get life, next week we'll probably touch on John 14, 6, the famous verse. says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, look, no one comes to the Father except through me. When the span, when that span of authority is established in the book of John, it evokes an unavoidable ramification for any living, breathing human being. You're not going to get through this life and what comes after it without having to deal with this on, at some point. If you get life, it'll be from him. This is the one who has the authority over the cosmos and material realm, religion and social society and the natural realm, weather and the physical body and the spiritual condition of every human being. It evokes the, the ramp, these ramifications. This is what's true, John says, about this Jesus. This is why it's really important that if you're here at church because it just seems like the thing to do, or you come at Christmas and Easter because that's what the culture does, that you step back and say, let me rethink that. As one who is made in the image of God, who's responsible to that God, and who God's extending himself to, he says, deal with my son. Because, first of all, this, John says, is your one and only true God. In John 8, he's, Jesus is arguing with the, spiritual, the religious authorities, and he's talking about Abraham, and, and they're, we're children of Abraham, they said. We, we know what we're doing. And he says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw my day, and he, re, and he was glad. And they, and they say, what are you talking about? 
you're, you, he's, you're not even 50 years old yet, and you're talking about somebody who lived centuries and centuries ago, who is the father of our entire nation, plus a couple others. You're not even 50 years old, they said. You have seen Abraham? And then he says this phrase, I'm going to tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, and he uses this phrase, which is the, German, uh, the, the, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew from Exodus chapter 3, when God described his identity. Before Abraham was born, I am. It's called the tetragrammaton. It is the statement, the one who is. I am. This is blasphemy if he's not God. This is why they picked up stones, it says, to kill him. Which is the correct way the law told him to respond to somebody who commits blasphemy. But Jesus presents himself and says, it doesn't really matter if you believe it or not. It doesn't change what's true. Before Abraham was born, he says, I am. Behold your God. Beyond that, he's determined that he is the final determiner and bestower of this thing called life. Back in John 5 again, he says, as the Father, I mean, think about how significant this is. As the Father has life in himself, he doesn't have to make it happen. He doesn't have to eat to keep it going. He doesn't have to breathe. The, the God who is a spirit, he ha innately, eternally has this life in himself. So he is granted that the Son has life in himself. And he's given him authority to judge. In other words, to determine who else gets some. Because he is the son of man. He is that determiner. You can argue about it. You can deny it. You can insist there should, got, should be many, many ways. It won't change the fact. That this is our God and he is the one who holds life. But get this. Once that's established, this is the greatest part about the gospel. Why it's good news. That's true. We can stand in awe of that. We can have fear about that. But here's the good news. Man, are you in luck. Boy, are we in luck. Because this person has shown that his attitude toward us is one of love and grace. This is one who, somebody who is, will, he is not a tyrant. He's not a bully. He's not going to just demand you grovel or, or, he's gonna, or just going to punish you needlessly. In fact, he is so willing to, to restore what he's lost in us. He values us so much well, I mean, here we are, little carbon-based units running around. He could recreate as many as he wants. He goes, no, no, they've got the image of, of my father. I want them. I want to find a way. I'm going to do anything it takes for them to be restored to me and get the life that they were created for. His attitude, this great authority, this attitude is somebody who just passionately loves you. Passionately. Not just the world, you. And will go to any great length he can to offer your restoration. And he will use that authority to freely provide what we most need. Look at John chapter 6. Jesus declared, look, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the will of him who sent me, that I'll, I won't lose any of the ones he's given me. I'll raise them up on the last day. Oh, th there's a passion in there. There's a love in there. There's somebody who who is going to do whatever it takes. And then he uses this analogy in John chapter 10 of a shepherd who just loves his sheep. He just, he wants, to sh he wants to draw them around himself. And he says, I'm a good shepherd. The good shepherd is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. 
My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I just give them. I just give them eternal life. And they'll never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. He gives eternal life. He gives care and guidance and hope. And he gives a freedom and an involvement. Hear this. Even in a little situation or the big one that you're walking through right now. Even the thing that's gripping you so tightly that you think it's going to crush you. The thing that's left you with no hope. The thing that you think is lost forever. The thing that you think no one cares about or no one can do anything about. This same authority says, oh, I'll enter into that. And here's what I want to do. I'm going to find a way to set you free. I'm going to set you free from the control of it. Eventually, the pain of it. I'm going to set you free from the compulsion of having to have it because I'm going to show you a better way. And in John chapter 8, says, he says this phrase, which you've probably heard before. If the Son, the Son of God, oh, if he sets you free, it's absolute freedom. You know why he can do that? Because he has the full authority to enact it. He can do that because he is God in the flesh. John presents this man to us. He presents him to you and I. And he, he introduces him. He basically says, here he is. You've, se you've, heard of, you've seen ringside introductions, right? You know, before a boxing match, and they'll announce who, who's in this corner and who's in that corner, and they give a whole spiel about what they've done, how much weight they weigh, and what they've accomplished. And I, in, in Rocky IV, um, Rocky is in the corner with Apollo Creed, what turns out to be his last fight, and they're introducing Ro uh, Apollo, and, and, and the guy's going on, and he says, he's the master of disaster, he's the king of sting, the dancing destroyer, the prince of punch, the count of Monte Fisto, and Rocky turns to him, and he goes, he, he goes, oh, dude, uh, how, do you have enough names? That's my best Rocky, sorry. <laughs> and, and he says, it's almost there. But when you do that, um, you're introducing who it is you're really dealing with. Several years ago, uh, comedian Steve Harvey asked the question, what would it be like if you were given a ringside introduction to Jesus? What would that be like? And with um, a hat tip to him, I want to invite you to think with me. And if you'll allow it, I think maybe it just be, might be worth giving it a shot. So if it's okay with you, here's what I would say. If I was introducing Jesus, it might go something like this. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you a man who needs no introduction. His accomplishments exceed the scope of every empire, every dynasty, every superpower ever known to man. When the material universe was formed, it was this man who uttered the words that spoke it into existence. He is the one who separated the elements of nature, drew the borders of land from sea, and shaped the landscape of the mountains. His mother was granted the title, highly favored of God. And his father is known as the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. From his humble birth in an inconsequential village, he rose to a prominence 
that transcends the greatest royals of the world. His wealth and his holdings extend beyond an accountant's ability to compute, spanning from the cattle on a thousand hills to all the riches of heaven. Though he's never written a book, a blog, or an article, he has created more headlines and inspired more printed words than any personality who has ever lived. Though he has never held public office, he has influenced more cultures and shaped more civilizations than any elected official ever. Though he has never worn a military uniform, he has commanded a greater army, conquered more kingdoms than any militia in human history. His biography tops the charts as the best-selling book of all time. He once orchestrated the largest spontaneous fish fry on record. He astonished the wine industry by transforming common drinking water into the finest quality wine this side of Tuscany. He faced down a major sto a storm front and commanded the wind and waves to be still just so his friends could row to the shore in peace. Not only has he successfully calculated the exact number of stars in the celestial heavens, he formed each of them individually and named them all distinctly. He performs the miraculous regularly and the impossible daily. He has given sight to blind people, movement to lame people, healing to sick people. He has brought dead people back to life. No smoke, no mirrors, no sleight of hand. On every continent of the globe, he has given hope to the despondent, dignity to the marginalized, freedom to the enslaved. He is known as the demon destroyer and the outcast defender. He is the father to the fatherless and the son of the Most High. He is the light of the world and the bright and morning star. His power is irresistible. His grace is irrepressible. His purpose is unavoidable. And his authority is indisputable. No one can match his presence. No one can impede his justice. No one can exhaust his forgiveness. No one can revoke his pardon. He is the rock of ages and the chief cornerstone. He is the bread of life and the spring of living water. He is the lion of Judah and the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when he soon returns... He will ignite the sky with his brilliance, riding in triumph, escorted by angelic armies, his strong ruling arm bared, and his leg tattooed with his true title. Every tribe will come to him. Every nation will acknowledge him. Every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess his preeminence. He will embrace those who have submitted to his kingship, and he will rule on his rightful throne with justice and righteousness forever. It is my honor and privilege to present to you the author of life, the Alpha and Omega, the last and the first, the Lord of all lords, the King of all kings. Ladies and gentlemen, I invite you to stand to your feet. Put your hands together and show your love for the great I am, the resurrection and the life, the one, the only, the King, Jesus, the Christ.
Father. Hmm. 